Mother's Day, and it is a special day, particularly for the church. Uh, for the world, um, they'll go get a bucket of chicken or something and say a few nice things, maybe have a few arguments in their home. Who knows what will go on there. But for the Christian, Mother's Day is extremely important to us. It's a reminder that God created Adam and Eve. He, he created a beautiful reproductive system between a man and a woman. And he used women to bring about society. And within that, his goal was to bring about the Messiah, the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. So biblical womanhood is extremely important to the church. And it should be held in highest regard. And so we honor our moms as part of God's plan. This was God's plan. And so we don't give up with the world who drifts away from the roles of men and women in crude and even disgusting ways at times. We honor biblical womanhood. It is God's design. And so within biblical womanhood, we have some mothers. And you are dear to us. And we're so grateful for you. Um, I'm so thankful for my mom. She's probably watching out in California now. And um, I know I could say with a clear conscience, I would not be here if it wasn't for my mom. She poured into me truth taught me the word of God, uh, corrected me when I was wrong, and pointed me to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I'm so grateful for her. Then God gave me a wife who became the mother of my four boys, and I am eternally grateful for you as well, Gina. So with great praise, I give credit to the Lord for what he's done. Well, let's pray, and then we're going to look at the life of Hannah and see the glory of God through that life. Father, we thank you for this time together. It is so sweet to be together as the church. There's uh, such a joy in the room as you pour your children back into the house of God again together, Lord. Rejoicing and singing, hearing testimonies of the faithfulness of our Heavenly Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Singing songs together with our voices, clapping in rhythm to the praises of our Lord and Savior. What a blessing, Lord. We thank you that you have ordain these days, Lord. Challenging as they may be, Lord, they're causing us to re-look at you, Lord, in unique ways. Understand your power and authority. Understand your wrath a little bit, but see your grace in great many ways. And so, Lord, we thank you for what you have taken our nation through. We thank you for what you're taking our church through. We pray that you would gather us all together soon, Lord. You would cause us to be uh, corporate worshipers together. Um, and our voices would be in one accord again as we sing publicly, Lord. Thank you for the Bible, Lord. We're so grateful now on a day like this, Mother's Day, where the world just is really struggling to even figure out what women are about. We know because the Bible tells us. And so we can honor women and exalt God as we look at this great text, the life of Hannah and her love for her Savior. So, Lord, bless the teaching of your word, Lord. Lord, give it power and authority as you always promised. May your spirit carry it to our hearts and may it pierce us, God, and cause all of us, women and men and children, married and single here today, to be challenged to be people who find great grace in our almighty God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I had Pastor Paul read um, the first part of 2 Samuel, Hannah's prayer of thanksgiving. 
because that is the outcome of chapter one. When you study that prayer, I almost preached just on that prayer, but I decided to backtrack and see all that went into that prayer. When you study that prayer, you see a woman who knows God. She is not some woman who, uh, you know, time and here and there and maybe a little bit knows God and celebrates God a little bit. When you see that prayer, you know this woman knows God. She gives him credit for the control of life and death, for the pillars of the earth, the terms and theological uh, points that she brings out within that prayer are astounding. And certainly we know it was inspired by God. But that did not come about without hardship. It did not come about um, in an easy, no problem life. It came about in a difficult circumstance. And she pressed on and sought God. And so she is a beautiful woman to look at. But I don't want you just to think about this as a message to your moms or to women. Oh men, there's so much to learn in this text. Children, there's great amount of truth to learn in this text. And so I would pray as we read chapter one, listen to it, and then I'm gonna work my way through it expositionally and bring out some thoughts that will encourage it. Let's read the, the first chapter of 1 Samuel so we can hear the whole story together then come back to it. Now there was a certain man in Ramathim, Zophrim, from the hills of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, the son of Elihu, the son of Tuhu, the son of Zophrah, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Penelah. And Penelah was, had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man, who would go up to his city yearly to worship, Go up from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. Had two, um, and two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were the priests of the Lord there. When the day came that Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penea, his wife, and to her sons and her daughters. Then Hannah, he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, but the Lord had closed her womb. Her rival, however, would provoke her bitterly and irritate her. Because the Lord had closed her womb. It happened year after year as the offering, um, as often as she went up from the house of the Lord, she would provoke her so she wept and would not eat. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat and why is your heart sad? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Then Hannah rose after eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli The priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She, greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and a razor shall never come on his head." Now it came about as she continued to pray before the Lord that Eli was watching her mouth. As for Hannah, she was speaking in her heart. Only her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. So Eli thought she was drunk. Then Eli said to her, how long will you make yourself drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah replied, no, my Lord. I am a woman oppressed in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do you consider do you consider your maid servant your maid servant not as a worthless do not consider your maid servant as a worthless woman for I have spoken until now out of my 
great concern and provocation. Then Eli answered and said, go in peace and may the God of Israel grant your petition that you have asked of him. And she said, let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went her way and ate and her face was no longer sad. Then they arose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord and returned again to the house of Ramah. And Elkanah had relations with Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And it came about in due time, after Hannah had conceived, she gave birth to a son, and she named him Samuel, saying, Because I have asked of him of the Lord. Then the man, Elkanah, went up with all his household to offer up the Lord to yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, I will not go up until the child is weaned, and then I will bring him, that he may appear before the Lord and stay there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Remain until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord confirm his word. So the woman remained and nursed him until she weaned him. Now when she had weaned him, she took him up with her with a three-year-old bull and one ephod of flour and a jug of wine and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh, although the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull and brought the boy to Eli. And she said, O my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. For this boy I prayed, and the Lord has given me my petition, which I asked of him. So I have asked, excuse me, so I have dedicated him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is dedicated to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. Well, this is the beautiful story of a broken-hearted woman who would relentlessly pray before God. When you look at the book of Samuel, we're introduced right away to this woman, Hannah. And Samuel is a tremendous book. We see Samuel go on to be the prophet of the Lord. He anoints kings and, and certainly is the one who recognizes David as the man of the Lord who would carry the seed of, of the Messiah. And he does wonderful things, but this book opens up to show us how these things began. You'll notice as we read the text that every year at the time of the feast, Hannah and her family would go up to sacrifice. But it was through terrible suffering that she did this. And in, in each year, um, it would be more difficult, it seems to be in the text, but this year, this recording here, it seems to come to a head. Well, Israel's feast had in many ways turned into somewhat of a party. They had drifted from God's original plan of the sacrifice and feast of the nation coming together. We see that in the high priest's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, as they abused God's system. Drunkenness was common, as you see Eli's response. He thinks she's drunk. This seems to be a common occurrence at this time, unfortunately. And at the height of the celebration that Hannah's involved with, she could take it no more. She couldn't take it anymore, and she just leaves, and she's gone from the feast. We find her sitting at the entrance of the temple, the entrance of the tabernacle, and there she's grieving and praying and most likely sobbing heavily. In one sense, you think about Hannah. She's somewhere around 1100 B.C. She's in a society very different than ours, and she was an Israelite woman with what many would say would be a pretty good life. She had a husband named Elkanah. He was a husband of somewhat high standing, according to verse 1. Usually when the Bible records this type of legacy, it's one who has been recognized in areas. 
He must have been moderately wealthy, understood by that he could support two wives and the children. It seems to be, he seems to be very affectionate and very loving towards Hannah, as you saw in verse 5, um, where he loves her and gives her double portions. Verse 8, where he says, look, I, haven't I been good to you? He at least practices keeping the law. At least uh, he's doing sacrifices and attending the festivals. We're not told much about his heart. And despite the great struggles in Israel at this time, this family seems to be at least going to the feast, celebrate these, celebrating these things at some level. The problem was that though Hannah and Elkanah, uh, uh, though, though Hannah had Elkanah as a husband, she really didn't fully have him, did she? She shared him with Penea, who was very fertile, very mouthy, and was a thorn in Hannah's flesh. It seems God allowed some forms of polygamy in the Old Testament. We see that quite often. But if you study each and every one of these situations, they're all fraught with trouble. Every one of them. It was not God's design, though he allowed it. At first glance, the story is of a domestic conflict, isn't it? And we wonder, when you look at it, when you read it, you wonder what good can come out of this. But God has an amazing ability to create beauty out of ashes. This is what he does. He takes the incapable and makes it capable. He takes the impossible and makes it possible. Our Lord takes the empty and he fills it up. This morning we will focus on Hannah's situation and learn from a godly woman, but the story is really about God. It's really about his faithfulness. It's about his redemptive plan, his goal to raise up a man who will identify King David, who will usher in and bring the seed of Jesus Christ through his line, who will be our salvation. I want to look at three thoughts and kind of break this down in some large sections here this morning. The first one, a new work birthed out of sorrow and obedience. A new work is birthed out of sorrow and obedience. Well, Hannah's difficult problem was not new. This had been going on for years. You can tell that in the text. It's year after year the Bible says that. Hannah was able to have children. Verse 2 says that Elkanah had two wives. Uh, Hannah was one of them. Penea was another one. But notice that Hannah had no children. Verse 5 tells us that God closed the womb. Already the Bible is telling us of the authority and the right for God to do as he please. In verse 5 it says, but the Lord had closed her womb. This was something God had done, God had planned. However, as difficult as those facts were and, and, and frustrating to Hannah, things grew especially worse when the family would travel to worship at Shiloh. The festival were, were great family affairs, and, and after the sacrifices, the family would turn to feasting which always reminded Hannah over and over that she had no children. And Penea was there to remind her of that all the way, <laughs> I'm sure. Though probably not helpful to Hannah, but it's easy to think that she was in a long line of women that God withheld children for from for a number of years to bring about his providential will. Many new works began from the feminine sorrow and obedience that we see in women in, in, throughout the Bible. And think about Abraham's Sarah. 
There's 10 chapters dedicated to her barrenness. At least 70 years of difficult, dark times of not being able to have a child, though God told you you were going to have one. Isaac's Rebecca, at least the first 20 years of her marriage, she did not have children, could not. Jacob's Rachel, at least 10 to 15 years of her marriage, and that was in a soap opera world with sister wives and handmaidens affairs. Samson's mother, the wife of Manoah, was barren, and the scripture tells us that an angel appeared to her, and she had Samson. And Samson is a picture of the struggling spiritual realm of, of the nation of Israel, but yet in the end, Samson turns to God, and he is glorified through Samson's life. In the New Testament, probably the most uh, glaring example is Zachariah's wife, Elizabeth. Here's a woman who served alongside her husband, who was a priest, who served his whole life in the role of a Levi priest, and yet she was barren. And God, in his providence, brought forth John the Baptist, the one, <laughs> the one who, who was the shining bright light uh, to bring forth the witness of the coming Lord Jesus Christ. He was the forerunner to our Messiah. Well, it seems childless women are often God's instrument, isn't it, in the scriptures? He raises up these key figures as part of his redemptive plan. He often uses people who go through difficult situations to bring about his redemptive plan. This is the way he works. He wants us dependent upon him. Many of these women were in the line of the promised seed. It's easy to see that, especially the three early ones that are the red. Or they give birth to instrumental people to serve in great roles. You think about Samuel. He's really the first great prophet um, after Moses to the nation of Israel. They were in desperate need of him to be risen. Eli had really hurt his position. He had not taken care of his fatherly duties, his children. But two boys that he had were a disgrace to the Levite tribes. And there was a need of a godly man. And Hannah is selected. Hannah and all her suffering and all her neglect and all her abuse from this other wife, she was selected to usher in Samuel. Now, Hannah shares a unique relationship with these barren women. All of these women suffered, but ultimately are used to glorify God. And they're a great study. There are several good books out um, of godly women that God uses. And Hannah's in the top of that list. It's often when God brings a new work, he uses those who are empty. That's what he does. When God is about to do something, he often chooses those who are empty and they have nothing to offer, it seems. I think God is most glorified by using our total inabilities. The, the, the inabilities of not being able to accomplish something ourselves that seems to be his starting point. Isn't that true in salvation? He starts with us in salvation, right? We have no ability. Total depravity, right? Inability to, to bring ourselves to God. He starts there. We see him do that every one of our lives. Every one of us are saved out of our inability to save ourselves. And that's what he does in ministry as well. That's what he does in ministry, whether that's church or your work with your neighbors or whatever he does. He takes people who are empty, he takes people that don't think they have really anything to offer a lot of times, but they're open to God. They're broken. They're, they're, even in their suffering, they'll run to God. That's who God uses. 
So many people think they have great things to offer God. He takes the empty people. He takes the nobodies. And he does great things. Our, our hopelessness and our helpfulness is not a barrier to God. You say, well, I, I could never stand up on stage. Or I, I don't know if I could share the gospel with somebody. I promise you, it is in your helplessness and your hopelessness at time where God shines the brightest. And I think that is so clearly seen in this lesson. I honestly believe when his people are without strength, without resources, without hope, without human ability, that's when God loves to stretch forth his hand from heaven. We see that in Hannah's life. Many times through the redemptive history, he chooses women to be that vessel. He chooses moms to be that vessel. He extends grace and mercy through them. And these stories, when you study these stories and you read and keep reading through your Bible, they'll encourage you. They're huge sources of encouragement to see someone so distraught that God reaches down and does great things. Yahweh's work began not only through her barrenness, but came through great stress too. We don't want to miss that. She is barren, and that was a huge difficulty in the ancient world. But she is stressed she has people that are, are hard on her. Look with me at verses 6 and 7. Her rival, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her. Anybody ever have someone like that in your life? Don't say out loud. Because the Lord had closed her womb. And notice it happened year after year. Notice the repetition of this. This was not just a, a little outbreak, a little, you know, little spat they would have. This was a yearly problem. Year after year, Penea would abuse Hannah. And as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she would provoke her so she would weep and not eat. Penea apparently used these special worship occasions to hurt Hannah. You ever seen somebody do that? To take a special occasion, something that was unique, and use that to drive a wedge or cause problems. Penea was probably hurt as well, though. It's obvious that Elkanah's affection was for Hannah and was in a greater way. She, she was a hurting woman. The difference is Hannah runs to the Lord. Um, Penea, she just causes more problems. See, see the difference in it. Both have some hurts. To be a woman who your husband does not love, like he loves something else. And, and look, you don't have, this isn't polygamy. This is, I think a lot of women go through this. Many women end up in our office after their husbands have divorced them and love some other woman. And their hearts are broke. Why wouldn't he love me? Women go through these things. And they either run to the Lord and find solace there and find help there and, and find, find grace in that time of need or they become embittered. And it seems that Penea may have fallen into that deep trap of bitterness. You can imagine maybe the conversations as they got ready to go to Shiloh. Penea and her children maybe were speaking and, and obviously the childness, childlessness of Hannah would come up you could maybe imagine the conversation as they were getting ready. Penea would say, now, do all your children, all you children, do you have all your food ready for the trip in Shiloh? Dear me, there are so many of you, it's hard to keep track of you. Mommy, 
Miss Hannah doesn't have any children to prepare food for. What did you say, dear? Oh, I said Miss Hannah doesn't have any children. Yes, you're right. Miss Hannah does not have any children. Doesn't she want children, Mommy? Oh, yes, she wants children very, very much. Wouldn't you say, Hannah, that you wish you could have children? Doesn't Daddy want Miss Hannah to have kids too? Oh, certainly he does, but Miss Hannah keeps disappointing him because she just can't have kids. Why, Mommy? Oh, because God doesn't want her to, and it's possibly because God is mad at her. Why is God mad at Miss Hannah? I don't know, child, but she doubtlessly has failed him in some way. Oh, Hannah, by the way, did I tell you I'm pregnant again? I was just dreaming up and thinking of maybe some of those conversations that might have been going on, these hurtful conversations as they prepared to go worship. And, and again, this went on for years and years as Penea provoked Hannah and would bring her to tears. However, as sinful as it was, I want you to think about this. It drove Hannah to God. It drove Hannah to God. It drove her to the throne of grace in the presence of Yahweh in fervent prayers, as we'll see, which, which eventually brought about Samuel. Now, let's not miss the application of Hannah's prayer life. These were bleak circumstances with constant oppression by this woman that she lived in the same house with. But as difficult as that sounds, Hannah would find comfort. She'd find comfort on her face before God. It was a mark of a godly woman. She found comfort there. And it's clear she believed in the, the uh, mighty works, the almighty works of God, because she relentlessly came before him pleading for his grace and mercy. I think the last few weeks have been interesting where God has led the elders to uh, encourage me to preach at and even Brian preaching. Think about what we've been through. We've looked at Ephi- uh, Philippians chapter four. We looked at contentment in difficult times. Those are powerful sermons that, that passages would just come off the pages as we think about being content. Is God enough? Is Christ enough for us? Can he sustain us? Can we turn to him? Can we, he be greater to us than fear of a virus or fear of whatever? Brian brought us a sermon out of one, Psalms 139 that the, our little young ladies uh, quoted for us this morning. But there we see the depth of God's involvement in our life. He knows when we lay down and when we rise up. He knows our breaths. He knows our ordains. One day cannot be taken from his ordained years of your life. We're reminded how great of God he had. Then we turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. And there we learned about submission and humility and, and leadership within the church to lead the church. Even when we're afraid, the elders lead and they lead towards the Lord. But then the challenge to, for all of us to submit and to humble ourselves and receive that grace in the time of need, to cast our cares upon the one who cares for us. There's great comfort in that, brothers and sisters. And if you just try to muscle your way through, you will always see the negative of stuff. You'll be trapped in it. You'll look at the negative of life. You'll look at the negative problems. When you learn to run before the Lord, Hannah is such a beautiful example of this. She teaches us to find joy on our faces before the Lord. And men, that's just not for the women here. It's for us too. Remember, in some of our deepest struggles, God is starting a new work. God's starting a new work. 
And as you head into your next trial, and you will, because the Bible says there's many trials and tribulations in this life. As you head to that, can, can we stop and just think for a moment that God might be starting some kind of new work as I go through that trial? Can I trust him in those difficult times? Second thought, there is freedom in the presence of God. There's freedom in the presence of God. Look at verse nine with me. Then Hannah arose after eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. Well, the sacrifice meal that ended, Hannah rushes out abruptly to the, right to the tabernacle. She's somewhere close where she is spotted by Eli who's sitting at the entrance. Old eagle eye Eli, is, who's struggling to raise his own sons properly, is watching Hannah with great suspicion, isn't he? But notice in verse 10 what happens. She, greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. This was her response. Hannah begins to pray with the heaviest of heart, an uncontrollable weeping. She's in the middle of the feast. It's now, now the sacrifices are over. It's family time, and, and portions are being divvied out. And here, Elkanah's giving portions to her, the other wife and all of the children, the sons and daughters that, that Panea had. And, and she's just reminded of it and can't take it anymore, and she runs to the temple. And there she falls seemingly to the ground with great distress, the text says. The word there, great distress, it's stressing how difficult of a situation. Have you ever been to that point where it's unbearable? That's the idea of the word here. It's it's beyond ability to lift yourself. The struggle is so great, you can't sleep, you can't eat. You're so overwhelmed with the weight of the trial. This is where Hannah's at. And she didn't just weep, she wept bitterly. She felt the weight of this. It's deep sorrow and it's not of the sinful sort. It's a different sorrow, isn't it? There's sorrow that you and I bring into our lives because we're wicked at times. We, we, we don't obey God's word. We, we do things that are sinful. We bring tremendous consequences into our life. That's a different situation. There are times God asks us to go through things that we can't bear at times. And that's where we find Hannah. But apparently, I want you to think about this, even our tears themselves from a right heart can constitute a prayer to God. You say, well, how do you know that? King David. Psalms chapter six, verse eight. Just write this down. He says, depart from me all evildoers. Maybe Hannah felt that with Penea pressing in on her. He says, depart from me all evildoers. Now listen to this. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. Who? And, and listen, guys, this isn't a, this isn't a feminine passage. Because I think a lot of guys hear the story of Hannah and they go, well, I'll just, I don't really have to listen. This is girl stuff. David, King David, who slayed his thousands, probably one of the greatest warriors who have ever had his feet on this planet, says that God heard my weeping. What a statement. He's suffering with us. He hears those weeping hearts and those tears. This is our Lord in the garden. Weeping tears like drops of blood. Pleading with his father for his will to be done. Men, if you can't see that, 
you'll be very difficult to live with because you won't recognize the difficulties when people suffer. Hannah had nowhere to turn, so she just flees in verse 9. Penea's cruel mockery pushed her out. I think she found little relief in Elkanah's well-meaning but inadequate sympathy. Verse 8 says that he said, look, I, I'm better than ten sons to you. It's typical kind of male response, right? <laughs> I think it was heartfelt. I, I don't want to question that, but sometimes men just don't have the right things to say. He probably should have got on his knees and put his arm around her and let me just weep with you. And yet he comes with inadequate sympathy. The feast just reminded her that she didn't have children like everybody else around her. We see Eli himself, who's not that helpful at first. He has he's seen the indulgement of wickedness even in his own sons, and he automatically sees Hannon with drunkenness. Notice verse 12 through 14. Now it, hap- now it came about, she continued to pray before the Lord that Eli was watching her mouth. For as Hannah, was, she was speaking from her heart, only her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. So Eli thought she was drunk. 14, Eli said to her, how long will you make yourself drunk? Put away your wine from you. Well, I think one of the thing does is it helps you realize how far the nation had drifted away from living a life pleasing to the God who rescued them from Egypt. The festivals had become more about the party than the feast. Oh, sure, you would do your time. You would go do your sacrifices. You would go through the ritual. But it was all about getting together and eating and partying and have a great time. And so automatically, think about this. Here's the high priest. He automatically assumes this woman's drunk. Because why? Because he sees it all the time. He sees that people do not take the worship of God seriously. And yet he struggles to lead his own children in some facets. All Hannon had was the Yahweh of hosts. Look at verse 11. She made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts. What a statement. This, this title gives us some insight into Hannah's view of God, right? So she calls on this God of universe, the one who controls every force, whether in heaven or on earth, the God who holds all resources to the world in his command. That's who she's calling on. She's calling on the greatness of God. The Lord of hosts was no joke to Hannah. This was a title that exposed her faith. It exposed how she loved God. And look, it it should stretch us as well to dwell with such an omnipotent God. One of the things this whole virus thing has done for me personally has increased my strength on a God who has hemmed me in. He has control of everything I do. He has my breath, my life, all in his hands. And it it takes away fear. It gives boldness. And in the sermons that have been preached, I I know I've preached most of them, but, but they're going through my heart long before you ever hear them. As I sat day after day in my study going, you are a great God. You are the Lord of hosts. Nothing goes on here without your permission. In fact, you ordain all these things. And I think when I look at Hannah's prayer, I go, oh Lord, she loved you. Look at the rest of this prayer. It says, 
O Lord of hosts, if you would indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant. This is all going to tie in later. But will give your maidservant a son. Then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and a razor shall never come upon his head. This is no self-centered prayer. It is a prayer of faith from a relatively obscure woman living in the hill countries of Ephraim who believed God cared. Believed God cared. Listen, the firstborn of man and beast, Israel was told in Exodus just 13, we just studied that during our midweek services, that they were to dedicate their children to the Lord. But what Hannah is doing here in verse 11, this is not some soft pedal dedication. This was a vow. This was a promise to give her son fully to the work of the Lord. I would imagine this too who had been failing in the nation of Israel. Oh, maybe they went and they said, oh God, thank you for this son. Thank you for this lamb. Thank you for those things and offer and offering. And never really think much about what that meant. Uh, not to Hannah. Not to Hannah. I'm gonna give you my son. I'm gonna give it to you. What a responsibility children are, aren't they? God wants our children you and I can't save them, can we? But we sure dedicate them towards the Lord. We can say, Lord, rebuke me. Show me where I'm wrong, where I'm weak. Help me point children, grandchildren, children in my life. Maybe I've never been able to have children and I teach Sunday school. Whatever it may be, give me the strength through your word of God and the work of your spirit to point children towards Christ. It's such a powerful role and we do that even to this day. And I think that this most powerful aspect of Hannah's prayer is that she finds freedom in the presence of Yahweh. She, she's been so tortured, and then she gets into his presence, and she finds great freedom. Look at verse 12 and 13. And it came about as she continued to pray before the Lord that Eli was watching her. But as for Hannah, she was speaking in her heart. And only her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. You can see this freedom that she has. Finally, she's in a place. Her husband doesn't understand what she's going through. The other woman doesn't understand. Nobody understands. She doesn't have children to share this with, but she has a God who listens. She has a God who listens. And she finds great freedom there. And in this scene, this shows this intense prayer coming from her heart. Her lips are moving, but there's no audible sound. You and I know this, don't we? And she's weeping before the Lord right from her heart. Notice the end of 13. Eli looked at her and he could see something so different than what he normally sees out of women. This is, this is unusual. So what does he surmise? She's drunk. End of verse 13. And Eli rebukes her, right? Look what he says. And this is a good rebuke. Certainly if she was drunk, and certainly that was a big problem, even his own sons, how long will you make yourself drunk? You're gonna live this way? Put away your wine from you. See, Eli was accustomed to probably seeing drugness, and, but he can't see the heart of Hannah. He can't see it at the moment. His sharp rebuke, though, was met in a gracious response by Hannah's sad confession, but freeing confession. Notice what she says in verse 15. But Hannah replied, no, my Lord. No, respectfully, that's not true. You're the high priest, I respect you. 
But that's not the truth. I am a woman, verse 15 says, oppressed in spirit. Means the inner person is weighted down with great sorrow. I have drunk no wine or strong drink. And then this phrase right here, look at this beautiful phrase. But I have poured out my soul before the Lord. I have poured out my soul before the Lord. See, there's such freedom that Hannah seems to know and possibly maybe Eli has forgotten. She, she's acted godly, godly in a godless society at times. And though her heart was breaking as she pours forth her soul to the Lord, she finds freedom there, doesn't she? Another Psalm of David, probably they believe written while he was hiding in the caves as King Saul was chasing him around the wilderness using all of the nation's resources to try to kill the coming King David. David cries out and says this in Psalms 142, one through three. Listen to this. I will make supplication with my voice to the Lord, Yahweh. I will pour out my complaint before him. I declare my trouble before him. When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, you knew a path. Whoa. Man, I read that this week and I thought, oh Lord, what a great psalm. I think every Christian who has truly strived to follow the Lord Jesus Christ with our life, we either have gone through it, we'll go through it again, or you're going to go through it. Times where you pour your complaint out before the Lord righteously. Not sinfully, but righteously. See, this godly woman with her tremendously heavy soul in tears, born out of grief and despair, she pours out her soul to God who allows her, think about this, who allows her to come in her deepest sorrow. Too often we think Christianity, we gotta get everything right. We gotta have it all put together, then maybe God will listen to us. Such a lie, isn't it? Back to your own abilities, isn't it? He's there when we have no abilities. That's when David and Hannah and so many others pour out. I'm stuck in this cave. Saul's outside. My life is with inches, humanly speaking, of dying. So I'm going to make my complaint to you, God. Oh, brothers and sisters, our God is not changed. He is immutable. And we, like Hannah, can come before the throne of grace with humble boldness as our immutable high priest grants our request in the time of need. That's Hebrews 4.15, isn't it? He hasn't changed. He does not change. He's the same God of the Old Testament and the New Testament. You can come before him with a heavy burden and pour it out to him. One of the many things that makes Hannah a godly woman is that she came and prostrated herself before God. Verse 16, look at this. Do not consider your maidservant as a worthless woman. For I have spoken until now out of great concern and provocation. Christian, we, we should allow Hannah to instruct us here to come to Christ, commune with God in such a humble way. And I, and I, and I want you to understand this. Say, God expects us in our humanity to come to him with griefs, with our perplexity of problems, even sobbing at his feet. Yes, even with provocation, frustration. But you can do that without sinning. You can speak of the righteousness and goodness of God even when you're frustrated. And he hears you. 
And the Lord handles our tears and he, and he will not turn you away. This is a mark of godly people, godly women and godly moms and godly fathers and men and so forth. This is how God wants us to come to him. But now, this takes knowledge of God, right? I think one of the problems is, is people don't want to study their Bibles. They don't want to know this kind of God. They don't want to search him and know him, that he holds their life. He holds all things in control. Understand a God. Read him from Genesis to Revelation. Get a hold of the depth of who he is. That's what this woman knew. She knew this was not just some deity, someone to be offered frivolous sacrifices to at some time. She knew he was God, God of the universe. And let me tell you today, if you come to God with a lack of knowledge of him, he will still hear you, but it'll be difficult for you to hear him. He's given us the word of God. And I think too many Christians today don't study their Bibles. They're not in good Bible teaching churches. They haven't been discipled. No one's taken them through a partners or something like that. They, they have presuppositions of God that are greater than what the Bible says. And so they struggle and they come once, they come twice, they come maybe three times. God doesn't answer and they leave. And they find themselves embittered against God. Year after year after year. Don't let that term mention you. Know she's, she's still coming to God through this. And, and, and when you study her prayer in chapter two that Paul read, oh my goodness, the depths of her knowledge of God. See, the trials and the testing, brothers and sisters, are to make you trust God. Cause you to run to him, to know him. Are you playing around with God? Maybe you're here today, you're watching, and you just have this surface relationship with God. Gimme, 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 God meet my needs, and so like that. And, and, and you just don't hear from him. It seems like you're not close with him. You gotta know him. You would never, if you don't know me, would you come up and fall before me and start weeping over and telling me your problems? And you probably wouldn't do that. Now, some of you do that because you know me. You know I care about you way greater than anything a pastor, an earthly pastor can give, God knows. But you need to know him. You need to believe that he hears you. You need to believe that your tears are not silent to him. You need to know a God who is in-depthly has a knowledge of you with a million and billions of other people on the earth. You need to believe that. It impacts your prayer life in such a way. Look at verse 18. She said, let your maidservant find favor in your sight. Tells Eli that. Then look at the last of this. This is where freedom comes in, right? Because you've poured your heart before the Lord. Anybody who has been at this type of prayer life where you've poured your heart over the Lord, over a lost child or, or some difficult thing that you're going through, look what happened. So the woman went away and ate and her face was no longer sad. She spent time with God, found freedom in that. She went away, not sad. I.e., she had joy again. You want your joy again? Pray. Last thought. Godly character joyfully surrenders its greatest gift. Godly character joyfully surrenders its greatest gift. In verse 17, Eli's accusations quickly turned to blessing as he began to understand this godly one, woman's life. Look at he, then Eli answered and said, go in peace and may God of Israel grant your petition that you have asked of him. In verse 18, Hannah went on her way as sadness turns to joy as we just marked. She had spent sweet time with the Lord and her prayer and her pain and her sorrow all came together and increased her faith in God. 
In verse 19, the family worships the Lord one more time there in Shiloh and they return home. And the Lord in his kindness remembers his faithful servant Hannah and he blesses her with a child. And in the word remembers, an interesting word is zakar in, in the Hebrew. It's, it's often used to remember, but it's just that word, that English word falls short. It has the idea he doesn't forget. He doesn't forget. And, and it's even translated often in English, mindful or considerate. And then listen to this. It's even translated to celebrate. So God, he doesn't forget <laughs> It isn't like, oh, Hannah, forgot about that. That's a poor view of God. He remembers her, considers and even celebrates her. Verse 20, Samuel arrives and came about in due time after Hannah conceived. She gave birth to a son and she named him Samuel, saying, because I have asked of him of the Lord. And so in verse 20, Samuel arrives and is given the name fitting to Hannah's heart and request of the Lord. Samuel means heard from God or asked of God. Um, it's, it's a, again, a difficult word to bring into English. Verse 11, Hannah had vowed, remember, to give Samuel to the Lord if he had granted her a child. This was kind of a Nazarene type of vow, like no razor will touch his head. He'll be dedicated to you. You have every bit of my child. And then the verses 21 through 28, they primarily focus on the fulfillment of Hannah's vow to give her son to Yahweh. Notice verses 21 through 23, then the man Elkanah went up with all of his household to offer up to the Lord a yearly sacrifice and pay his vow, but Hannah did not go up. For she said to her husband, I will not go up until the child is weaned. Then I will bring him. Then he will appear before the Lord and stay there forever. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, do what seems best to you, Remain until he, you have weaned him. Only may the Lord confirm his word. So the woman remained and nursed his son till he was weaned. This is an interesting set of verses here. Um, I, I think here's my thoughts. I think she knew going back and forth to sacrifices and feasts could be a deterrent from her keeping her vow. She knew how difficult it would be to want to hang on to him. These are just my thoughts here. And so she asked her husband, I want to stay back here. I want to remain here till when I go up, the next time I present myself to the Lord, I'm going to present the child he gave me. It was kind of a climax to her trust in the Lord. That day would finally come and he was weaned and, and she would give him. The weaning in the ancient world was at least three years old. Moms, I don't know. I, as a dad, I, guess, I looked at this, I thought, a three-year-old giving it to a big burly Eli, whose eyes weren't very good. Here, take care of my kid. <laughs> that's faith. I mean, that's where this woman had got to. She totally believed this was a God thing. And she hands this child over. Verses 24 and 25, the year arrives. So does Hannah with this little Samuel. She has a three-year-old bull, or the, it's hard in the Hebrew, it might be three bulls, um, hard to tell. Um, but she has a bushel of flour and wineskin, a jug of wine, and offers to the Lord. This is, all, this is all pictured in the offering, the free will offering to the Lord. And notice Hannah's obedience is without hesitation and acts in complete worship of Yahweh. Notice in verse 26, she reintroduces herself to Eli. She says, Oh, my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. 
She doesn't intercede of the one you thought was drunk. She says, I'm the one who was praying. It seems that faithfulness to the Lord was probably rare in those days. So she reminds Eli, I was the one that was praying here three years ago at least. Eli maybe had thought he would never see this woman again. I don't know what went through his mind. The Bible doesn't tell us. But here she is fulfilling her worshipful vow to the Lord, ready to hand little Eli over, um, little Samuel over to Eli's care. I think verse 27 and 28 will end with this. These are precious verses here. Um, as Hannah's heart is exposed in these verses, um, four times the Hebrew uses a, a root word to ask here. And, and let me give you just a rough translation. My Hebrew's not near as good as my Greek is, but, but here's, a, here's a shot at it. I think this is what she's trying to say. Let me try to bring this across in word for word a little more because I want to point something out. For this child I prayed, and Yahweh gave me my asking, to which I asked from him. And I also have given back what was asked to Yahweh. All the days he lives, he is one that is asked for Yahweh. Now I know that's a little bit wooden, but the goal is to express Hannah's heart as she asked in faith and knowledge of God. That was the word. And you see in verse 17, notice back in verse 17, it's exactly what Eli said to her. May, may the God of Israel grant your petition that you have asked of him. So she takes that word from Eli and she prays that. I'm asking you. And that's why I did that. The English only shows about twice in there, but yet it's four times in that prayer she, she says that she had asked for him. Now, Listen, 1 John 3 tells us, Beloved, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we should receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that please him. Mm. The Bible says for us to ask the Lord to come with, with hearts that are not condemned, meaning you've confessed sin, you're right with the Lord in a consistent way, and you should have confidence when you come before God that he hears you, even in your tears. But it, notice it's also done from people who say, Lord, what would you have me do? How do you want me to walk? I want to walk in, in a way that's pleasing to you. James deals with this and says, you don't have because you don't receive because you ask with the wrong motives. It's a total different one. But not our Hannah here. She asked with a desire to glorify God, to give back everything. And you see her rehearse that in these verses 27 and 28 as she rehearsed this prayer back she's gratefully rehearsing Yahweh's answer to her prayers and she gives this child to his disposal he's yours we know in chapter 2 that yearly she goes up and she makes a little robe and ephet for him he's growing and so each year you gotta get a new one and she's watching from a distance but God opens her womb and she has many sons and daughters and they rise up probably to call her blessed let me close with just this final thought. Biblical woman, it is so important to the health of this church and Christ's church. Women carry out unique roles. Don't miss this. Women carry out unique roles to bring God glory that men never can. We must fight and stand clearly on the word of God that biblical womanhood, that God has a role for women in a unique way. I think moms, they're irreplaceable. They, they have a unique way of pointing their children to Christ as we heard in these testimonies today. I, said, I told Hayward, we were talking about this, I said, we need some testimonies. We need to hear some testimonies from some of our children, long 
children grown that have been here. We need to hear that. It's good for us to hear because I know what they're going to say. They're going to say, my mom pointed me to Christ. Dads, we do the same in a different way. We bring God unique glory in a different way, but moms are irreplaceable. Biblical womanhood, if you're single and you've never had children, you have an amazing role to bring to God. He developed you as a woman, and he wants glory from you. I pray this church never lessens the role of biblical womanhood and only has increased it here. I pray that women in this church will continue to set an example of how to submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. I think that's what godly women do. So moms, happy Mother's Day. And may many rise up and say you are blessed because you followed the Lord Jesus. And may it be said of you that you excelled them all, as Proverbs 31 says, for God was glorified in you. Father, thank you for Mother's Day. Thank you for Samuel, the book of Samuel, and the reminder of this woman who loved the Lord Jesus, loved God, knew he was gonna bring a deliverer. She, she did not know the Lord Jesus Christ, that name, but she knew that God was going to deliver her some way. Her faith caused her to run to God when there was no one else who understood. Her tears were prayers to you. They came from her heart. And you heard her and answered her. She's a reminder of a deep knowledge of God. She, she knows that you held life and death. She knew that you held the pillars of the earth and set them. She knew you, that you were a God of great power, great authority, and she knew you would hear her and she could come. Lord, I pray that you increase our faith today as we thought about this woman and her belief in a great God. May you be more glorious today, to us today through Mother's Day. Lord, thank you for our moms. Thank you for our women that attend our members and come here to Riverbend Community Church. Lord, thank you for them. They are so many, are such great examples to us. Lord, you've blessed this church. Continue to draw godly women who want to serve you from their hearts here. And may they teach the church how to live in submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We thank you for this blessed day in Jesus' name. Amen.